scripture reading today is Psalm 118. Uh, that's page 511 in your pew Bible. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Who, what can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live, and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. And he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Amen. What a psalm of praise that is. What, what numerous reasons to be full of joy and praising to the Lord God. Uh, this is a, a, a psalm that Israel sang, uh, praising God for his deliverance, and, and uh, specifically for them, speaking about being surrounded, being in trouble, being in distress, calling out to God and having God answer them and deliver them. It speaks of a, a joyous procession of the children of Israel returning to Jerusalem after great victory. But it's more than that. <clears throat> it's much more than that. This is a psalm that is prophetic. It speaks of what will be, what will come. It's messianic. It speaks of Christ. It also speaks to the whole plan of God. You know, it reminds us, history is not a random thing. History has a direction. It has a beginning. It has an end. It's not 
something, things that are just happening. History has a, a, a plan and a direction. And this psalm speaks of that. So how do we know that? How, how do we know this is prophetic or messianic? Well, quite clearly, we look at the rest of Scripture and we see many other places in Scripture where this context, this, this psalm, this idea is, is very clearly stated, quoted, uh, repeated. And we can, through reading the New Testament in particular, we very clearly see Jesus Christ is the subject of this psalm. <clears throat> and therefore, because we know hundreds of years before Christ, this psalm spoke of him and what he was to do and what the plan of God is, because of that, we now have confidence. We're encouraged. We have hope. We see already the fulfillment of many of these things in this psalm and we look forward to the future from the fulfillment of the rest of them. We see this psalm exemplifying the main purpose of God for all eternity. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if we look in verse 14, it says, The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. There's a clue. We look at verses 19 and 20. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. This is speaking of coming into the very presence of God, standing before the Creator, Sustainer, and Ruler of the universe. So, who is allowed into the presence of God? Who can come in and stand before the presence of God? Well, we read that in our call to worship. Scripturally, the one who is allowed to come before God, to stand in His presence, to go through the gates of righteousness, are... He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What, what does that mean? Well, we know from the rest of Scripture, and, and particularly well explained in, in, in Paul's epistles in the New Testament, this refers to the redeemed, to the saved, to those whose sins are forgiven. But not only that, sins forgiven and given the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, not of their own works, but of His. That's what he means when he says, God has become my salvation. It is the work of God that brings us through uh, and, and allows us to be in His presence. Uh, in, in Psalm 118, verses 10 to 13, you, you're given a hint of some of the distress and the troubles being surrounded. But those were more clearly uh, brought back or, or mentioned <coughs> again in 1 Peter that we read earlier. And, and not only are we reminded of the fact that there are troubles and distresses, but the passage in 1 Peter also gives us the purpose of those trials. Look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses, starting in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Well, he just finished talking about the great salvation uh, that we have kept by God in heaven for us to be revealed at Christ's return. He says, in this you rejoice greatly. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So he speaks of the glorious salvation of Christ, but says, we're grieved by trials. Why? Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ. 
receiving the end of your faith, <clears throat> the salvation of your souls. We're told the purpose of our trials is to prove, to temper, to strengthen, to purify our faith. To achieve the end result, which is the salvation of our souls. Well, what if we fail in that? What if we don't stand up under trials? What if, what, what if we, we, we fall? What if we falter? Well, Peter has an answer for that in verse 5 of chapter 1. Because he's talking about this great salvation that we have. And what does he say? He says, you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. We're kept by the power of God. This is His doing. This isn't our power. This isn't our strength. This is the power of God. And compare that with the parable of the sower that Jesus spoke. When Jesus said, the sower went out to sow seed, and some of the seed fell on rocky soil. It sprung up quickly. Right? That speaks of, a, of a, a profession of faith. That speaks of someone who says, oh yes, I believe. But they have no root. They're not rooted in Christ. They're rooted in their own strength. And what happens when trials come? They wither and die. That's the opposite of what Peter tells us here. That Peter says, we are kept by the power of God. If our root is in Christ, it is not we who keep that faith. It is Christ. It is the power of God for our salvation. <clears throat> well, who are these people that have no root? They can be anyone, anyone who doesn't know the Lord. They can be people who sit in pews Sunday after Sunday, year after year, who, who acknowledge and, and, and say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But, but there's no root in Christ. You have to have your root in Christ in the work of God. So that's, that's who uh, may enter and stand before the, the, the throne of God, those who are, who are His children, who are saved. Now, Psalm, back to Psalm 118, he, he, he moves on to this, this, this stone. What is this stone he talks about? Well, there's, as I said, there's many, many references and, and quotations and reminders of, of this stone throughout Scripture. Isaiah chapter 8 talks about a stone of stumbling. Uh, Isaiah was discouraged and people were speaking against him. And God said, don't, don't believe a conspiracy. Don't say there's a conspiracy. I, this stone will be your refuge. But to those who disobey, to those who don't believe, it is a stone of stumbling. And, and you see more of that later on. Isaiah chapter 28, which is where, what Peter is quoting from in his passage, talks about God saying, I'm doing a thing. I am placing a stone in Zion, a chief cornerstone, precious, a sure foundation. And I love the next verses. With justice and righteousness. Right? What's one of the things that really gets under your skin when people get away with unjust things? Right? Well, this stone has justice and righteousness as part of its foundation. And, and we heard a, a, a number of weeks ago when, when our pastor was preaching about the ascension of Christ and, and, and he said, all power is given to me. And he said... What does that mean? He already had all power. What does it mean to say, all power is given to me? And the point was, is that was the necessity of His incarnation, of His coming in the flesh, to be one of us, to receive all power as one of us, to be that 
head of the church, that sure foundation of the church, that firstborn of the dead. That's why it was so necessary for Christ to come in the flesh as one of us. And the context of that passage in Isaiah 28 is, is in contrast to the leaders of Israel of the time. Uh, and so, so the first part of Isaiah 28 talks about the, the, the unjust rulers, uh, both in government and in the church, church the, the, the worship, the, uh, uh, the religion of Israel, and, and how they are, are failing and how they are unjust. And then he says, Behold, I do a thing. I'm laying a stone, a stone in Zion. And, and so it's that contrast of, of, of the world versus the church. And that the new Israel, that prophecy of Christ opening salvation to all mankind and becoming that sure foundation. You know, we, we talk about uh, in, in monarchies, you know, the house of Windsor. They're the, the monarchy now. Well, Christ is the foundation of the house of God. That is the church. That is the new Israel, the true Israel. Um, and that's uh, speaking of the, that in, uh, in Isaiah and, and, and also in, in Psalm 118. We, we also see reference to the, the stone uh, in Romans chapter 9 where, where, where Paul quotes, um, where he says this, he says, he's talking about uh, what shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. A stumbling stone. The, those who fail to attain righteousness because they stumbled at the stumbling stone. They refused to believe in Christ. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10 to 10, uh, about this, this stone uh, that God placed uh, in Zion. And it explains that we, as the church, we are becoming the building of God, the house of God, being able to worship Him in an acceptable manner. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our worship is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not on our own, not of our work through Jesus Christ. And that verse takes us to John 4, verse 24, when Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And when he put his finger on her sin, she changed the subject. And she said, your people say we have to worship in Jerusalem, but our fathers worship at this mountain. And what was Jesus' answer? There comes a day, or is coming a day, when it will be neither Jerusalem nor, but the people who worship God worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about the fact that we are built on this foundation, this cornerstone, this true and precious stone. It makes our worship and our service acceptable. It makes it in spirit and in truth. 
this passage then goes on to uh, show the distinction uh, between the saved and the unsaved. Verses 6 and 7, verses 7 and 8, and verse 9 talks about the difference between the saved, those who are built up as living stones, versus the unsaved, those who stumble at the stumbling block. It says, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, then he quotes again, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and thus a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Preaching of the gospel is an offense to the unsaved. And as our society and our culture becomes more and more and more anti-God, the preaching of the gospel becomes more and more and more offensive. But that is what the scripture says. And then in verse 9, he goes on to say, but you, back to those who are saved, you are a chosen people, generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who were once, were not a people, but now are the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. What a glorious, glorious understanding. And then after that, he makes that distinction. He goes on to say how that applies to our living. If we, we didn't read that section through, through the rest of Psalm, uh, 1 Peter 2 and 3, but, but that's what he moves on to then. He, he applies it to our living. Uh, he, he kind of pre-judged uh, uh, that a bit in, in chapter 1, where he talks about since you've been purifying, chapter 1, verse 22, um, he says, love the brethren. Now, I was speaking to a fellow last night and mentioned this and, and uh, he, the Bible says not just love the brethren, but love them fervently. Fervently love the brethren. And I mentioned that and he said, yeah, it wasn't good enough just to put up with people. You actually had to love them fervently. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's what we're called to do. And, and, and as I say, in the rest of 2 and, and 3, he talks about where does the rubber meet the road in your life, in your living, in your here and now? Well, what does he talk about? He talks about submission to the ruling authorities. He talks about uh, submission and, and honoring your, your boss, uh, your, your, your masters in, in the, this context, but in our context, are those who we're employed by. Living our lives as child, a child of Christ, showing by our, our good conduct, our honoring of those who... Are, are put in authority over us. It talks about wives submitting to husbands. It talks about husbands uh, un treating their wives with understanding and, and in Ephesians, loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This is the rubber meets the road aspect of, of, of this truth, of this scripture, that we must, because of our salvation, because of our love of Christ, because of the faith uh, that he gives us, Express that in our day-to-day -day walk, our day-to-day -day living. And, and, and in so doing, give glory uh, to the Lord God. Back to Psalm 118 then, he says in verse 23, this was the Lord's doing 
It is marvelous in our eyes. What's the this? He says, this is the Lord's doing. What's the this? Oh, you can just look back and say, well, he put the cornerstone there. But, but what does that mean? What, what, what's the, the truth of that? The this is the sacrifice of Christ. And most importantly, his incarnation in the flesh, his death, his resurrection, the atoning sacrifice that he gave, that that sin was placed on him, the reconciliation that he did, that he brought about through his death on the cross. That, that 2 Corinthians 5.21 that said, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the this. It's the revelation of the righteousness of God apart from the law that we hear of, we read of in Revelation or in Romans 3, verse 21. Right? Because Romans 3, verse 20 says, by following the law, no man will be saved. Because the only effect of the law is that it shows how far, far short we fall of God's glorious righteousness. But in verse 21 it says, but the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law. It's, it's what John Piper has called the justification of God in Romans 3, 26, where this sacrifice, this propitiation has allowed God to justify us and yet remain just because He has not passed over sin. He has not failed to punish sin as it rightfully needs to be punished. And we sang of that in Psalm 103. He doesn't treat our, punish our sins the way they deserve because He punished them on Christ. That is the this of this is the Lord's doing. You know, we heard in April um, one of the sermons uh, around uh, the crucifixion of Christ and, and our pastor said this event is the most important event in all history where God himself took our punishment upon his body so that we may come to him. Is there any question why it is marvelous in our eyes? Is there any question why we rejoice and be glad in the day? This is what he means by this is the day the Lord has made. You know, I grew up as a kid in church uh, singing choruses in Sunday school and one of them was this is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad. Uh, the understanding of the meaning of this is the day wasn't there. It was, okay, well this is, this is another day we get to live. Uh, no, this is the day is the day the Lord saved us. It's the day Christ hung on the cross, took our sin, and removed it. Is there any reason we wouldn't be joyful? Of course not. This is the day when the veil was torn, like we heard a few weeks ago. That veil that was the barrier that said, stay away. Don't come near. If you come near, you'll die because you're sinful and I'm holy. 
That's the day that God took that veil and ripped it apart from top to bottom. That's the day that now we can read Hebrews 4.16 and say, we come boldly approach the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. Verse 19 of Psalm 118. Open the gates of righteousness that we may go through. Ascend the holy hill of God and stand in His presence. Psalm 24. Do you see the joy in this? Do you see and, and rejoice in your spirit every time you hear the worth and the, and the, the praise of Christ proclaimed? And you know to rejoice even further? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11 says, this was the eternal purpose of God. This was not a reaction to Adam falling. God didn't have to change plans. Ephesians 3, 11 says, this is the eternal purpose of God that He uh, ha has accomplished. 1 Peter 1, 20, we read that. Christ was foreordained when? Before the foundation of the world. Before anything was even created, Christ was already ordained as the stone in Zion, the chief cornerstone. Doesn't this cause you to rejoice and, and be confident? Well, if it doesn't, if it's just words, then listen to Paul and examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Uh, I mean, look, look at the, look at the uh, before we worship section uh, on today's bulletin. It speaks of that very same thing. To the degree that you rely on your own works, you are not saved. Because it is all grace or nothing. And that's what we rejoice in. Ephesians 3 also tells us that the eternal purpose of God to give us access through Christ to His presence is what allows us to stand in times of trouble. It's what gives us that confidence. Psalm 118 then ends with the only reasonable ending, and that is the praising of God. Coming to His house to worship, expressing confidence in God and His enduring mercy. His mercy that never ends has no limit to it. As we said, Peter moved on from talking about that stone to encourage us as Christians to live that truth. To live the, the joyous truth that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ and that we are given that great uh, calling to serve the Lord and to be able to stand before Him in His presence. If you don't know Christ, if this isn't marvelous in your eyes, then don't delay any longer. Call out to Him. Get saved. Come to Him. Find out what it is to enter through the gates of righteousness and praise the Lord. Don't be here yet another Sunday and walk out and just let it all go. Because you know, every now and then I, I think about hell. 
You know, a lot of people don't like to think about hell or even talk about it. But it's terrifying. I mean, think about it. Think of the worst thing, the worst pain you've ever had, the worst disappointment you ever had, the worst you can ever think. Multiply it by infinity and then realize there is no expectation of relief or end and realize that you have the realization of that and the fact that you heard the gospel so that you wouldn't have to suffer that. It's terrifying. No relief. No end. No expectation that it will let up a little bit today. That's real. And yet, God has done a great thing. He has laid a cornerstone in Zion. And that is how we come to worship Him and be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank